Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 21? Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Well, church, I hope you'll leave your Bibles open with me this morning as we spend our time in Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7, the passage that was just read to us this morning. There's so much happening. The plot is beginning to thicken in this book of Mark. Jesus has been teaching, and he's healing and casting out demons, and we've seen so much movement. He's demonstrated his authority over demons. He's demonstrated his authority to forgive sins. He's demonstrated his authority and wisdom in his practice on the Sabbath. He stepped outside of religious convention and expectations to create a, a new fellowship, a fellowship that is being gathered around him safe, a fellowship that is to save life, he says. Jesus is clearly no ordinary rabbi. And this is how the Gospel of Mark is holding him out for us to receive him. I hope whether you've been with us the whole time through our series or if you're just joining us today, right away you can see there's a, a serious movement, a lot of action happening in our passage. Our passage last week ended with the Pharisees going out immediately. You can look at it with me in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against him how to destroy him. They went out immediately just after having been rebuked by Jesus. Listen to Jesus' words. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Well, what did the Pharisees do? They immediately go out to conspire with the Herodians how to kill Jesus. Evidently, we have their answer to that question. These are powerful, strenuous times for Jesus in his ministry of the gospel. What will he do? How is he going to respond? Surely, Jesus is going to take the opportunity in our passage this morning to, and the, all the growing popularity that's gathering around him to turn the mob against the authorities, seize power for himself, put down the plotting and the conspiracy between the Pharisees and the Herodians, turn the mob, win the day, right? Surely. It makes absolute sense. This morning, what we're going to see is what Jesus does, and he does what he always does. He turns our conventional wisdom on its head. When our popularity rises, when our church grows, when we go viral, right? It's a temptation for us to ask, now that we have them, how do we keep them, right? Isn't that the age-old church growth question? Now that we have them, how do we keep them? Instead, we see Jesus lean even harder into his central purpose in the Gospel of Mark, the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
And the question of now that we have them, how do we keep them, as if having a crowd pressing in upon you means to have them and have them to your central purpose and mission, Jesus turns that on its head. As he does, he, we find Jesus not playing to the crowd, but instead what we see Jesus doing is calling a few to himself to be with him and to join him in the proclamation of the gospel. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these few moments that we have together to spend time in your word. I pray that you would make us observe our false assumptions, that we would notice our little practices and our philosophies of ministry, that we would be confronted by what we see about our Christ this morning. I also pray that we would find ourselves in the crowds pressing in. We would find ourselves in the gracious mercy of our God to desire us and call us to yourself, to keep us and to be sent as ministers of your gospel. I pray that we would find ourselves here under the ministry, the orchestration of the gospel ministry of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for your work in our midst this morning by your word and spirit. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Right away in our passage, we see Jesus being crushed by the crowd. You see, the deal is, after this ordeal in Capernaum, again, that we saw last week, this confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus, and and sort of caught in the middle of it all are these people who have great needs, who are being healed and cared for and loved by Jesus. We see Jesus withdraw to the sea. It's an odd statement because Capernaum is actually by the sea, all right? So he doesn't have to withdraw very far, it would seem. But rather, what we see is what we've seen Jesus do in the past. He probably left the city. Previously, when things are getting hot in the city for Jesus, he leaves the city, goes to the countryside. In this place, he seems to have gone to the outskirts of the city to some place by the sea. He removes himself outside the city of Capernaum to some remote place. We often see Jesus doing this withdrawal. And we see every time Jesus withdraws, the crowds come pressing after him. That's what we see in our passage this morning. Jesus drew, withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. A great crowd followed. Now, these great crowds came from far and near. If you look at where they came from, it's listed. This is one of the first times where we get a glimpse of what it means by great crowds. Does it mean that, you know, a good number of the people in the city came to Jesus? No, it's, we're told explicitly in verses 7 and 8 that they came from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. If you look at this list, there's a startling diversity. And some of you, I looked at the list. I even read them with you, but I don't know what they are. Well, let's work for just a second. Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem. These are the center of the political, cultural, religious, and ethnic Israel. All right, so what we're talking about, when we're talking about these three, Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, we're talking about Israel is coming to Jesus. And then we have Udumia and beyond the Jordan, with the naming of these regions that are really, by and large, outside of Israel and often with people of blending mixed heritage and blending and mixed religious experience. It would be probably referring to the area of Edom, ancient Edom, and beyond the Jordan, all that area out there just outside of Israel. And then we have Tyre and Sidon. And make no mistakes, these are areas that are overwhelmingly Gentile, all right? Places that are beyond suspect. That was the area beyond the Jordan. Tyre and Sidon, these are beyond suspect. This is where you come from if you don't belong to Israel, if you're outside of the people of God, an area populated by religious outsiders. Surely, Simeon was right when he prophesied over Jesus, when Jesus was presented at the temple as a child, a man named Simeon in Luke chapter 2 said this, Jesus is a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. 
and for glory to your people, Israel. Jesus is the light to the Gentiles and glory for the people of God. Now, Jesus, in our passage, he feels the press of this crowd, this diverse crowd coming in from all over the the Middle East region, really. He feels their press. Look at verses eight and nine with me. In the second half of eight, it says this. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, that's important, I think that's worth noting. What did they hear? Now, what, we know what Jesus is doing. He's, he's doing the work of proclaiming the gospel. We're told repeatedly throughout Mark that Jesus' business is to proclaim the coming of the kingdom, of the good news of the kingdom of God. That's not what they were coming for. They heard what he was doing, not what he was saying, and they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. He looks at what's going on, he sees why they're there, and he observes what's going to happen next. When it says that they came to him, it's an understatement. They're literally pressing upon him. Verse 10 says, they pressed around him. The same word for pressed is used in verse 11 when it says that the unclean spirits fell down before him. When it says that they're pressing upon him, it's saying that they're literally actually falling down like a rock concert, pressing in on that front gate to just get closer and closer to the local celebrity. They're pressing in, falling over one another to get to Jesus. Friends, this is a dangerous crowd situation. The crowds were literally falling over one another to get to Jesus. Jesus saw what's happening, and so he tells his disciples to make sure that a boat is ready to make a quick escape lest they crush him. Do you hear that? He's basically saying, leave the car running just in case we need to make a quick escape. Jesus is telling, this might get ugly. We might need to make a quick getaway. In reading the commentary by Kent Hughes this week, he's been so helpful, he almost always is, as I'm studying the scripture, Kent Hughes writes this week, I was moved by how real Jesus is. Jesus truly understands and has endured every aspect of our own suffering, including the suffering of the ministry of the proclamation of the gospel. Kent Hughes writes this. Jesus understands the pressure which we feel when we try to reach out to others as he did. He knows that when you really care about others, you open yourself to troubles virtually incomprehensible to those who do not care. I'm gonna read that sentence again. Because I want you to know, at Cross Point Coast, as I look around at many who are laboring as partners in the gospel, one of the greatest burdens that I carry as, as a pastor here among you, as a fellow partner in the gospel, is it burdens my heart to watch you labor and suffer in that labor. Listen to that sentence again. Jesus knows that when you really care about others, you open yourself to troubles virtually incomprehensible to those who do not care. He understands that those who stand with him are assaulted by a demonized culture which tries to gain mastery. He understands the pressures of a life of faith. I I don't... I love that. It's a comfort to me. On the other hand, it it could be a bit misleading. It's not that Jesus understands our life of faith. It's that we see that Jesus has endured the great life of faith. Jesus is the minister of the gospel. He is the proclaimer, and he suffered as such. And, And we watch that, and we say, Oh, my, my little sufferings are starting to make sense now. We suffer as our master suffered. The Pharisees, when have, the Pharisees we have encountered thus far in Mark, they certainly don't comprehend the pressure that is upon Jesus. Instead, they become where they should have been partners in this great proclamation. They become enemies 
of the proclamation. And I wonder if it's not because of something that's so evident over and over again. They just don't care. They seem oblivious both to the suffering that is around them and the efforts Jesus was making to bring the light of the gospel to the world. They don't seem to understand Jesus because they don't seem to care. Early in the pandemic, it struck me that for the most part, there were two basic types of people in the world. There were those who were so bored that they literally took to the internet to complain that they were running out of Netflix episodes to watch. Like that bored. And then there were those who were trying to lead and provide for those who were home and bored. I'm thinking of doctors and nurses, business owners and religious leaders, community group leaders, and sports coaches burdened with leadership. Eventually, those who were bored with too much time on their hands begin to Monday morning quarterback the decisions of those who were trying to lead them who didn't have time to watch a single Netflix episode during the whole course of the first months of this pandemic. It struck me that instead of criticism, what was needed was a little more empathy, thanksgiving, and patience. Really, what was behind all of that is what was needed was a little bit of care, a little bit of love for those who were suffering. Here's what I find in this passage. I find that Jesus knows me. He knows me well. He knows our struggles as we've sought to lead, protect, and provide for our families, our businesses, our neighbors, our community groups, our church, so much more. He knows what it is to care, and he knows what the press is that is upon us. In our Savior, he who has gone before us, it's a comfort to my soul this week, we have deep empathy. He knows. He knows our weakness. I'm thankful that we stopped here long enough in this passage to see that Jesus understands the pressures of a faithful life serving others, and what we are serving up is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That said, I'm glad that we stopped here long enough, but we'd better keep moving. We have a lot more to see. One of the things that we see in this passage is one of the pressures that is upon Jesus is that the crowds are coming for many different sorts of reasons. Each person comes with a story. Each person comes with a need. Each person comes with something that Jesus has to shape his care around. We're told that he healed many, that one of the great large categories of persons that were coming were those who were in need of healing. People came because of physical needs. Thank God that he uses suffering to cause some to come to Jesus. Do you hear that? There were some there, if they were in the comfort of their own home, just watching Netflix somewhere in Judea, they never would have come to Jesus. But God used their suffering to draw them to himself. This quote, you've heard me say it many times from Charles Spurgeon, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Consider that suffering has two purposes in the world. Suffering enters the world as judgment upon sin. Make no mistake, this is the first purpose of suffering. Suffering is judgment upon sin. Suffering enters the world as judgment. Now, not necessarily any one particular suffering is to meet one particular sin. So the person who is suffering under one of these diseases that comes to Jesus is not necessarily suffering because they sinned in some particular way. But suffering and death enter creation when Adam and Eve sinned against God, and so entered disease and death. And it remains in the world as a reminder that we are sinners under God's judgment in our sin. But that same suffering that is sent as judgment is according to the redemptive mystery of God what God uses to drive us to Jesus, our only hope of redemption, our only hope of rescue. You see, our solution is not, I sinned and it got me into this mess, so I'll stop sinning and get out of this mess. It's not the way that it works. 
We need someone from outside of the mess to step in, to take on flesh, to dwell among us and preach a good news and perform the gospel that we might be redeemed. And suffering reminds us we need redemption. We need the Christ. In our passage this morning, we see men and women flocking to Jesus in the midst of their suffering, sin, and grief. And we see Jesus with both compassion and power bringing his life-giving touch to all who would come to him. Who here is, is here this morning? I'm not saying who's, who here is here for the first time this morning, but who has been driven to this gathering in the midst of suffering today? It's one of the things that we ought to be aware of, church, that every time we gather, there are those who are among us, and perhaps you yourself, that need compassion, who need to be seen as one who is coming to Jesus in a place of suffering, in need of his word and his touch. Many came to Jesus for healing. But we also see another major category in this passage. We see that there were those who came who were unclean spirits. Verse 11 tells us, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. You are the son of God. It's noteworthy that thus far, only two groups have confessed that about Jesus. God, the father at the baptism of Jesus and demons who have properly recognized who Jesus is. Only these two. But this is a complicated one. As I read this passage, I thought to myself, why did the demons come? They didn't have to come. They were clearly in control of those whom they occupied. And yet, the demons came, along with others who suffered. Why did the demons come? Why would the unclean spirits flock to Jesus? One more time with Kent Hughes, so helpful. These filthy spirits would cast the bodies of their victims before Jesus, crying out with unearthly voices, you are the son of God, in futile attempts to render him powerless. This was in accordance with the ancient belief that knowledge of the precise name or quality of a person confers mastery over him. Surely the spirits there were to cause chaos, to confront the Savior, to confront the Son of God. It was as though Satan was throwing his minions at Jesus one after another, and they're literally falling down before him in his power. Satan is sending everything that he can to disrupt and cause chaos and to overpower and overwhelm the ministry of Jesus, and it's not working. It's not working. What we have in this scene is profound. It's a chaotic scene. It's a chaotic scene of need and compassion, spiritual battle, and Jesus' power. Mark is building episode upon episode. This is a part of a larger story as Jesus meets a frenetic movement of power and control. The story is moving like a fencing match. The image came to my mind watching this, that the crowds and the enemy lunge forward. Jesus steps aside and then parries. Jesus is meeting every single move of the enemy. He steps aside and he parries with the word and with power. Jesus knows the ministry that it's of crowds pressing upon him, but he also knows what it is to be the master shepherd of the flock. Jesus is the master minister of the gospel. We have much to learn from him. And this is where I want us to turn for the remainder of our time together. I want us to turn to the second half of this passage, and we will learn much from the way of the master. There's a, a book that I read many, many years ago that was sent to me by the seminary that I was going to attend, and it was called The Master's Plan of Evangelism. It was essentially a, an unpacking of this very passage, among others, in which we see the philosophy of the ministry of the great shepherd Jesus. And what we're told 
The first thing that we learn, beginning at verse 13, is that Jesus makes 12. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But in the face of all these pressures, with the crowds thronging to him, in the face of suffering and need, what do we see? We see that Jesus does two unexpected things. In the pressures of ministry, Jesus does two things. Again, think about it. His fame is growing. What do you do? What do you do if you find yourself with your fame growing and you're being faithful to the ministry of Jesus? How can the Pharisees expect to destroy Jesus when every needy person in all of the Middle East is flocking to his side? How in the world would the Pharisees defeat him? It seems like what Jesus needs is simply this, maybe a better security team, maybe some metal fences to to wall things off, maybe a stage, right? Why doesn't he have the disciples building something for him, not putting aside a boat so he can escape? Maybe some better advertising to better clarify how you're supposed to come and create some idols, uh, some aisles so you can come with greater order. He just needs to figure out how to keep the crowds a little more happy and a little more patient as he builds his mob. Gather the crowds, keep the crowds. A simple philosophy for ministry. That's been the dominant church growth strategy for many generations now. Gather the crowds. Keep the crowds. Instead, Jesus does two things. He tells the demons, the only ones who actually identify him rightly, he tells them to be quiet. That's interesting. He tells, he then retreats from the crowds. Again, he's done this multiple times, and he goes up the mountain with just a few disciples. Let me suggest that here Jesus reveals what is truly Christ-centered and beautiful about his strategy for ministry. Jesus' strategy for ministry is truly, functionally, Messiah-centered. Christ-centered. Him-centered. It's not centered by considerations for the crowd or manipulations of how they're coming. It's about him. And every time it appears that something is growing up that is not about the Messiah's purpose to come and to give his life as a ransom for many, every time it looks like something other than that is happening, Jesus says, nope, that is not my strategy. And he pulls aside and he reestablishes the strategy at the center. He goes to be with the Father or he pulls his disciples to come and be with him. I use the phrase Christ-centered intentionally because the center of Jesus' philosophy of ministry, his strategy for mission is not crowds or healing or exorcism or any other thing. Central to Jesus' vision is to bring disciples into relationship with him. It's the center of the thing, and it's the whole of the thing. Everything else that surrounds his ministry has to bend its knee, has to become a servant to that central theme. The gospel of Jesus comes to bring about relationship with Jesus, who is the Christ. Look at verse 13 with me. And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. First, don't misread that. Oh, we're good at this, making ourselves the center of the story, right? It did not say that Jesus called those who were desirable to him. Man, I can't tell you how many times I felt this inside myself, and maybe this resonates with you, that Jesus called me because he saw something in me. And now my business as a disciple of Jesus is to prove to Jesus that he made a good decision in calling me. 
And that the whole of my following after Jesus is actually a pursuit of my self-justification. Jesus, you made a good call. You made a good call. I'll tell you what's so hard about every single year believing that lie. Each and every year teaches me Jesus made a bad decision. I'm serious. Jesus did not make a good call. There's there's not a lot that's desirable about me, me by a holy God. But he's good at what he does. And he, of his own perfect sovereign will, chose Jeremiah, Peter, and you. You're going to belong to me. It's almost like he says, you're going to belong to me. Deal with it. (laughs) So I'm prepared to do business with you. Jesus didn't call the desirable. These disciples weren't chosen because they were the cream of the crop. They were chosen because the Lord willed it. That's the way discipleship works. Do you hear that this morning? Perhaps you've gone a different angle. Perhaps you're not willing to confess Jesus as your Savior because you think that you need to get desirable first. Friends, lay that down. Lay that down. One of the things that, I don't know if you've noticed this about the liturgy of Cross Point Coast, the the story, the way that we go about the telling of the story, is that we got sound just about everywhere. Now, it's not a lot of sound, not particularly loud church. We only have the band on like half of what's up here, right? But there's one time when all the sound stops, and it's somewhere where Mark or Matt or another says, we're going to go to the Lord in confession and silent prayer. And David plays one last chord, and it stops, and it's silence. And we have to sit there and allow a holy God to do business with us. I hope that one of the things that we see is there is nothing desirable that he would choose me. In fact, there is a great deal that needs to be confessed in these silent moments. But the Lord is good. He's gracious, he's merciful, and he does business with us. And then we open up the word and we say, God, tell us the good news, how you can take people who in the moment of silence, all that we can see is we're unworthy. Tell us the good news of the gospel, how you would redeem sinners like ourselves into fellowship with you. And we open up the word and we start filling the room with sound. And my prayer is that every week the sound is the sound of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way this was worded in our passage this morning, it falls in line with many of the statements that are run throughout the whole of the gospel. There were quite a number of disciples that Jesus chose, he desired for relationship with him. Quite a number, not just the twelve. One of the evidences that there are more disciples than just the 12 was Matthias. Matthias, in the book of Acts, right at the beginning in chapter 1, would take the place of Judas, who would betray Jesus. We're told that Matthias was one of those who were with Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, it says this, that we're told that Matthias was one of those who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of Jesus until the day when he was taken up from us. There are many disciples who are on that mountain even. Many times where we find Jesus speaking to the 12, we have evidence that there's disciples around him. We're told throughout the Gospels that there were many women who followed after Jesus as his disciples. They ministered to him and were ministered by him. These men and women, together with the apostles, play a key role, according to the providence of God, in the proclamation of the Gospel. So the first unexpected thing that we see when Jesus had all these crowds coming to him is he steps aside and he withdraws to the mountain 
Now, what's he doing here? What's he doing when he gets to that mountain? Look at verse 16. In verse 16, we're told, he appointed the twelve. And then he lists their names. One of the things that I want you to see about this and take comfort in is these are middle-of-the-road folks. There are quite a collection of just middle-of-the-road people, people like Peter and Andrew, simple, laboring businessmen working on the sea with James and John. Now, he gives them new names, not middle-of-the-road sort of names, names like Rock and Sons of Thunder. But when he found them, he simply chose to desire them. On the other hand, right here in the midst of these names, you have Simon the Zealot. And he is now a part of the community with Matthew the tax collector. You can't go further apart in this culture than those two groups of people. The zealot is one who is dedicated to the overthrow of the Roman occupation. Dedicated. He's zealous. They took on the name zealots in their zeal to overthrow Rome. And the tax collector, who is a Jewish trader, who's aiding and abetting the enemy. And they're listed right here with Peter and James and John in a singular fellowship called the Twelve. There is only one reason why these men are together. Because the Lord desired for them to be with him. Friends, that's right on point. It's the center of the passage this morning. It's the center of the sermon. Is The purpose of Jesus is to create a fellowship in himself. Do you see that? It's right there in the names of the people who are listed that they would be singularly united in him. There's only one reason why they remained together. And that's because Jesus kept them. Because they remained in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we are a fellowship in Christ because the Lord has willed it. It's by grace alone that any one of us has been saved, and it's by grace alone that we are a fellowship together in Christ. It's why we begin our services with that part of the story. Where do we begin? Every single week. Welcome this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I I wait till well after that, and sometimes I linger and forget to even do this. I wait till well after that to tell you my name or talk about Cross Point Coast at all, because we're not here because of Cross Point Coast. We're here because Jesus has made us a people together, a one people in a local place among many people who are gathered in the name of Jesus this morning. Now, there's a fascinating phrase Right here in verse 14, it says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles. Verse 14 of Mark says this in an unusual sort of way. The word he actually uses is not technically the word appointed, though it's reasonable to interpret the word and to translate the word appointed. It's not actually the word that was used. Literally, the wording that Jesus uses or that Mark uses to describe what Jesus does in this passage is that he, that is Jesus, made 12. Now think about that. You guys know a little bit of grammar, right? Is that what you do with 12? Do you make 12? No, you count to a 12. You consider 12. You think about the number 12, but you don't make 12. The grammar doesn't seem to make sense. Well, what Jesus is doing, this isn't a job interview in which he has 12 vacancies and he's taking their resumes to consider each one of them for a job. Neither did Jesus simply have roles to fill. What Jesus is doing is he is making something, and the something isn't 12 people counting to 12 to make sure they're all there. He's making a thing called 12. He's making a 12. He's making apostles. The appointment of the apostles is an act of creation. It is Jesus making something. It's far more than filling a role It's an establishment of a new institution, a new body, and a new fellowship. Jesus is now instituting the fellowship of the apostles. 
These are those who had walked together with Christ throughout the whole of Jesus' ministry and teaching. And these would then go with the authority to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known. Jesus makes the 12 for two reasons. I don't have to guess at what they are. It says it in the passage. The first thing that Jesus says is that they might be with him. What's Jesus' purpose in establishing the 12? To, to form a great leadership team who would advise him regarding advertising strategies and getaway techniques. What's Jesus' purpose in establishing and making and creating the 12? That they would be with him. How much more simple of a ministry philosophy do you get than that? That, he would, that they might be with him. I've already indicated this, but the 12 are first and foremost a fellowship around Christ. This is always the case with the church. We are not a mission first. We are first a fellowship it's a fellowship as a people together in Christ. And even in saying we are a fellowship or saying we are a community, there's error just waiting for us that we are the fellowship of Cross Point Coast. This is a really loving church, and so I'm a part of their fellowship. No, our fellowship is not the love that we have for one another. Our fellowship is the love that we have found in Christ that it's infected a people who then love one another. Unfortunately, in recent years, this has been inverted. Some have suggested that the church exists for mission. The theological terms, if you're interested, are our missiology defines our ecclesiology. Simply, the mission of the church defines the makeup of the church. But that's not the case. The church is first and foremost a fellowship with Christ. The church, just like the apostles that announced the gospel that we believe, the church is a people who are instituted to be with Jesus, that we might be with him. It isn't missiology that defines the church. It isn't mission that tells us who we are. It's Christology that defines the church. It's Christ who tells us who we are. And so the order of theology in the church is this. For those who like these words, Christology, then ecclesiology, then missiology. And for the rest of us, we have Christ first. He made the church, and he's entrusted the church with a mission. A people who are with Jesus get to do what Jesus does. So first, Jesus calls them to himself. Don't miss it. I want to almost just close there, you know, because we miss it. And then he sends them out. The disciples are sent out to preach, the passage says. This is important because, again, we see that the center of Jesus' own mission throughout the Gospel of Mark is the mission of proclamation, the mission of teaching, the good news, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and the kingdom of God. The business of Christ and his apostles is the announcement of the gospel. As the apostles go with the gospel, they also go with compassion and the power of Jesus. The gates of hell, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Do you see that? It's the gates that won't prevail. The apostles will bring the word right to the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not remain standing. The demons are going to flee. Every stronghold is going to be torn down as they are sent out to proclaim the gospel. This is the authority that Jesus has given to the apostles. Essentially, Jesus has given the apostles the authority of the word of the gospel itself. Because what does the word of the gospel do? It destroys death. It covers sin and completely neutralizes the power of the enemy. He's given them authority, his authority, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Now, something happens at the end of our passage that's extremely important. We spent a lot of time talking about Jesus' philosophy of ministry, his ministry strategy. Unless we 
think we've stumbled upon as some great pragmatic ministry model that will solve all the problems of leadership and ministry. We begin to diagram this and get it down to three easy points that then we start putting up on banners around the church and stuff, you know? Mark reminds us in verse 19, look at it with me. I want you to see it with your own eyes if you can. Verse 19, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now there's a good ministry model for you. There's a philosophy of ministry. I'm gonna say something that's controversial and not true. I'm gonna say it and let you sit in it for just a moment. Jesus' ministry strategy doesn't work. It doesn't work. It seems like a great ministry strategy. You're like, oh, so he pulls aside 12, and he invests in them, so he's not adding ministry, he's multiplying ministry. That's what we need to do. We need to go two by two and train up leaders. Nice thinking, Jesus. Appoint 12 men, multiply your time, multiply your authority. You become sort of a higher up and minister everything that happens underneath of you. Except one of them would literally walk up to Jesus with soldiers in tow behind him, kiss Jesus on the cheek and hand him over to be crucified. There's the ministry model of Jesus. I want you to hear me on this. If your idea of adopting Jesus' ministry strategy means that things are going to go smoothly, that this is some sort of build a church in three easy steps strategy, you're not paying attention. Jesus' strategy for mission doesn't work if you're looking for an easy way. Jesus, his strategy for mission passes through, come on, the cross. You know that. And all who follow after him as disciples and missionaries will either become apostate or they'll take up their cross and follow after him. You see, I was wrong. Jesus' strategy does work. It's just not what we call pragmatic working. Jesus absolutely and perfectly accomplishes the ministry of redemption, launches a missionary movement that's going to upend the entire world to this day, but it doesn't follow the rules of the world. What we have in this passage is Jesus telling us how he desires things to be done. What Jesus' ministry philosophy is, is simple and clear. I would suggest it is three. Grueling. Take up your cross and follow simple steps. Jesus draws disciples to himself. Draw near to Jesus. Jesus creates a community around himself. Not just individual disciples, but a community, a church around himself. And he casts out and flees from every other thing that might draw that community's attention. And third, Jesus the, the business of that community is to speak Jesus' words with authority. Jesus' words. There's something that's in all three of those. It's so simple because it really is all about Jesus. But it's so hard because that is not the way of our world or our own wicked hearts. Our business is to do God's work God's way. But just like with the Son of God himself, almost every one of these men would end up crucified or some other suffering, brutal death. Jesus knows the crushing weight of ministry. And so too would the apostles come to know the crushing weight of ministry. But our business is to walk with Jesus and to entrust others to walk with Jesus with us. 2 Timothy picks up the same thing. In chapter 2, it says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The philosophy of ministry continues as we remember the gospel of Jesus together. After the death of Jesus, many who hear the gospel as it came to the synagogues just 
couldn't understand why the Messiah would have to suffer. Those who followed after the Apostle Paul often would find a great struggle in why in the world he was weak and persecuted. Shouldn't he be powerful like the leaders who were among them? And many over the centuries have slandered the church because of our suffering for the sake of Christ. But our way is simple. Our way is to walk with Jesus. And we proclaim the good news of fellowship with Christ so that others might walk with us as well. I want to close with this. If you are here this morning and you are not walking with Jesus, if you're not repented of sin and turned away from the way of the world to lay your life down before Jesus, to follow him as his disciple, one of the things that can become a barrier is that there is some way that you need to walk like Christians walk. That you need to become like the community before you can become like Christ. Friends, we're a mess. You might be doing a good thing not to become like this community, all right? There's a community that we need to become like, the community of the true church of Christ. I want you to know this. The call this morning to you is simple. Follow after Christ. Come to him. And hopefully those of you who are already in Christ by grace, he has chosen you and called you to himself. You hear this. Follow Christ. Follow after Christ and make known his gospel this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the simple clarity you desired that they would be with you. Thank you for the faith that many in this room have to desire what you have desired for them. They simply want to be with you. This itself is a gift of grace. We pray that you would call more to yourself in our midst and in our homes and in our neighborhoods and our workplaces. Lord, that you would call a people to yourself that we might be with you. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for that miracle. We trust you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.